ESCOM is currently implementing Stage 6 power cuts overnight. Stage 5, load chilling, will then come into effect from 5 tomorrow morning to 4 in the afternoon. The power utility has attributed the escalation in the intensity of load chilling to delays in bringing back some of its units to service. ESCOM has confirmed that the rotation will be repeated until further notice. Not only does the just energy transition guarantee a better supply, but the move to renewables also means more jobs. ESCOM's former head of just energy transition, Mendy Rambaros, says funding has been secured to repurpose ESCOM's Komadi coal-fired power plant. She says there are plans to shut down over 20 gigawatts of plants within the next 13 years to make room for 50 to 60 gigawatts in renewable energy. The $8.5 billion support announced last year is facing its first test in progress check. With COP27 kicking off, we reflect on Hillary's article titled What the $8.5 billion package will look like and how will it be spent? Hilary Jaffe of Business Day joins us now for more. Now, I think there are huge estimates for what uh, developing countries will need in the way of help from advanced economies mm-hmm. to transition, and yes. especially to transition in a way that doesn't uh, destroy affected communities or affected workers. It's, uh, but, so the $8.5 billion, which was offered by the five partners last year, is, is, is a fraction of what developing countries need, of what we need, but it is being held up as a model for other similarly coal-dependent developing countries to follow. The issue of energy in South Africa is a thorny one. As this episode is being recorded, we are back in the higher stages of load shedding and the frustration levels felt by everyone are at an all-time high. 2023 has seen a rise in load shedding, with News24 reporting in early February that South Africa had reached 100 consecutive days of rolling blackouts. And as you know, that has not let up. The reality, though, is that even if load shedding were not an issue, a large number of people would still not have access to electricity. According to a World Bank report issued in 2020, about 84% of the country had access to electricity, effectively leaving over 10 million South Africans with no access to power. Welcome. I'm Tombini Marangani, host of Season 3 of the Just for a Change podcast. If you've been following this series, you'll know that I have conversations with changemakers from South Africa and further afield. In this episode, we're going to be unpacking some of the complexities surrounding the green economy, just transition, and urban African energy issues. While Africa remains the least electrified continent with an estimated 600 million people without access to electricity, the shift in global politics, the war in Ukraine, and a post-pandemic economy, amongst other things, have led to an energy crisis worldwide. An article published by the International Energy Agency speaks to some of the issues that led to this current energy crisis. It reported that, quote, energy prices have been rising since 2021 because of the rapid economic recovery, weather conditions in various parts of the world, maintenance work that the pandemic had delayed, and earlier decisions by oil and gas companies and exporting countries to reduce investments, unquote. Amidst all of this, the need for a continued and more urgent energy transition is clear. In 2022, an $8.5 billion investment package 
was approved by the South African government to help move the country away from such a heavy reliance on fossil fuels and towards cleaner energy sources. In episode five of this season, I spoke with Dr. Mao Amis of the African Center for the Green Economy. Our conversation centered around tackling climate change in Africa and the importance of working towards a just transition, especially given the fact that the worst impacts of climate change are felt by people and countries who contributed to climate change the least. In, in a context where countries which are not principal polluters are the ones that are finding themselves having to pay the excesses of more developed nations, isn't that a bit unfair? And do you think that climate change mean, justice means the same thing in the developed and the developing world? Yeah, obviously, it's unfair. During, I think it was COP15 in, in, in Paris, there was a principle that has been agreed about collective but differentiated responsibility. And, and what that means is that we're in this together. There's only one Earth, there's only one climate system. So even though we are not responsible for this impact of climate change in the terms of developing countries, will, developing countries will be impacted. So how can everyone respond? Today, we're going to be expanding on this conversation and hopefully getting some deeper insight into the extremely complex issue of going green, while making sure that the most vulnerable members of society don't get left behind. My guest today is Professor Josephine Musango, a resource economist and systems dynamicist. Josephine is a professor at the UCT Graduate School of Business and her research interests entail using a systems approach in managing change and policy-related challenges in the energy transition, the green economy, and urban African energy issues. She has authored and co-authored over 70 articles on these topics and holds a doctorate in public management and development, where she focused on technology assessment of renewable energy sustainability in South Africa. Welcome, Josephine. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It's a real privilege to have you share your story with us. Tell me a little bit more about how you ended up working in the sector. Were you always interested in energy issues? Uh, thank you so much, Anton Pini, uh, for having me. Uh, I am trained as a resource economist, and this equipped me to use economic theories and methods uh, to manage resource problems. And I also use system dynamics, which is a method for understanding difficult problems that change over time in order to guide decision makers and manage these problems uh, sustainably. So Ntombini, uh, with that background, I was inspired uh, uh, to work in the energy sector in, in 2008. And this is a period I was involved in a project to assess the sustainability of our energy development in the Eastern Cape province. And just to uh, explain to the listeners, uh, our energy is a renewable energy that is produced from biomass, and that is particularly plants. It could be soybean, it could, you can think of plants that can be used to produce uh, energy that is uh, uh, for, for, for use in either vehicles like biodiesel and so forth. So in this project, our, we were involved in managing various resources or assessing the various resources, such as land, uh, where the, the crops are going to be planted and what type of plants are going to be planted. Uh, things like water, uh, what 
uh, amount of water that will be required to produce about energy. Also, energy that is required to produce that uh, energy is another resource we were uh, looking at. Uh, waste that is produced from the production of the modern energy. Other resources included human resource, like what skills will be required. Uh, are there available capacity uh, to really develop the renewable the energy? And other resources included financial resource. Uh, where would we get the money to invest? Who would be investing? Who are the uh, industry partners that would be investing in the renewable energy? Uh, so, Tompini, in this particular project, I learned that energy is dependent on technology innovation, but it also affects the economy, it affects the society and the environment. So for us to manage any energy development, we need to have collaboration with many stakeholders. Uh, this could be technology developers, it could be government, uh, industry, academics from different backgrounds, and also the communities that are affected by this uh, development. So ever since that particular project, I have focused my studies to understand these energy-related issues, uh, particularly energy transitions, green economy, and urban Africa energy issues. The energy issues we're facing right now in South Africa are dire. Given the complex nature of our energy needs, the insufficient infrastructure and inadequate policy responses, what part of the energy story in South Africa should our listeners care most about? We do have many pressing issues in South Africa at the moment. But I would like to summarize this into three root problems. Uh, the first one is energy security. And energy security here is the ability to meet our energy needs uh, when there is enough supply capacity to meet that need. But at the moment, South Africa, we are currently energy insecure. We don't have enough supply to meet our energy demand. And that is why we are having load shedding being implemented to manage that uh, energy demand supply mismatch. But load shedding is not the best effective way of managing this mismatch. So we need fundamental solutions to deal with this uh, energy security issue or energy insecurity issue. Uh, the second issue is about energy access. And what I mean in energy access is that not all South Africa population have access to energy and in this particular case, electricity. And we are even facing a bigger challenge because energy access is not about connecting to the grid. It's the ability to afford the energy, ability to have it when we need it, ability to fulfill the energy services we need. Can, we, can anyone cook when they want to cook? Can anyone really run their businesses when they want to run it? So energy access here is even becoming a bigger challenge for South Africa. So the low-income population are even the most affected population currently because majority have uh, no access to uh, energy and all clean energy fuels. And then the third fundamental issue uh, that South Africa is facing is the environmental sustainability. Uh, South Africa is currently the 13th largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world. And this is because uh, the country relies on coal for in the energy sector. And just to give an, an example, 85% uh, of electricity generation is currently from coal. And the South African government has committed to 
uh, moving to just energy transition, which is shifting away from coal electricity generation to uh, using cleaner energy uh, technologies or energy sources. Uh, but this movement from coal to other sources will require that the country or the government does not worsen the socioeconomic challenges uh, we are currently faced. And this includes poverty, inequality, and unemployment. Thank you for explaining that. It really puts into perspective the different parts of this sort of energy crisis that we're all experiencing um, for those of us who live in South Africa. How did we get here? I just want to share this in two points. Uh, the first one is the lack of investment in capacity. So over the, a very long time, um, the, the South African, um, uh, the country of South Africa, we haven't invested in the energy capacity or supply capacity. Uh, and the planning hasn't considered the time delays that are required to invest in capacity. So, for example, it takes almost 10 years to develop maybe a nuclear uh, technology. Uh, it takes almost a, a eight to uh, eight to 10 years to also uh, uh, develop coal capacity. So, which means if we want to, pro- uh, to bring a capacity into place, we need to have those long time delays. Of course, uh, renewable energy, it takes about two years, three years, but due to social or uh, political backlash, some of those delays have taken into account. So there has been lack of investment and lack of taking those delays in, in, in the planning. And then the second aspect is about the increased demand. So between 1996 uh, to 2020, uh, electricity access in South Africa increased from 57% to 85%. And I would say that this is actually an exceptional progress that South Africa has, uh, has, has achieved. Uh, this was through electrification programs and other policy programs to ensure that we improve energy access. But this uh, massive uh, electricity access did not um, correspond uh, with investment in the capacity. So you can see that we are in- increasing the, dem- the, the demand, but we didn't uh, work on the su- supply side. Uh, we also see urbanization also took place in South Africa at the same time. So majority of population live in, in urban areas and there are new demands about uh, energy demands. So you move to the urban areas, you want to have a TV, you want to buy new devices that use energy. So that increases the energy demand. Uh, So currently in South Africa, about um, 88% of the population live in urban areas. And uh, that is nearly about um, 40 million people in South Africa live in urban areas. And of those 40 million people, about 10 million people live in the informal settlements. So uh, the World Bank data uh, shows that between 1996 to 2010, South Africa decreased the number of people living in the informal settlements. But after that, those levels of informal settlement population has been increasing, and currently they are at... uh, higher levels than the 1996 levels. So it's a challenge uh, in terms of how we deliver energy services, particularly given the urbanization aspects we are seeing in Africa and particularly also in South Africa. 
That's that's really fascinating. What do you think accounts for this blind spot when it comes to planning and thinking ahead for the country's energy needs? I mean, clearly the technical aspects that you've already explained to us that you need 10 years to build nuclear power and a lead time of 8 to 10 years to 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 create coal-fired capacity. Those are known factors. So what accounts for this this lack of planning and this lack of foresight? There are quite a lot of studies that have um, indicated the need for building uh, the, the capacity. Uh, I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, some of the delays were due to political backlash in terms of uh, the investment. And I also think that the demand side um, and, and the understanding of the demand side aspect of uh, energy needs is very, it's not well uh, um, known. So there are very few studies that have done the demand side uh, management uh, to understand uh, those aspects. But again, uh, the energy issue is systemic and it needs to take into account all various uh, stakeholders involved because there are a lot of um, stakeholders uh, involved from uh, government, from industry, uh, from the community members. That requires a coordinated effort to ensure that we can develop uh, the, the capacity needs. If the, if the government was so successful in rapidly increasing the level of access to electricity, going from under 20% to over 80%, where does the political backlash fit in? Was it expectations were unfulfilled because we thought we'd be at 100% or people didn't understand that with this extended infrastructure and extended services, there was going to be a, a capital commitment that needed to be made and fulfilled by taxpayers? What, what, what is the missing piece there? In terms of uh, the lack of capacity investment, I can say there's a lot of studies that, that have already highlighted the need for, uh, for, for building new capacity. So that research is not, it's, it's not that it's hidden, it's there. I think there was the perception that there, we have enough capacity. And uh, of course, um, uh, the, uh, in terms of political backlashes, uh, given the fact that South Africa relies a lot on, on coal for uh, for for electricity generation, so we have the energy uh, mineral um, uh, mineral energy complex uh, where we've got vested interests involved, and uh, these are some of the aspects that uh, delayed in in the processes of uh, investing in the capacity. And I think also from ESCO, they've they've, they've already indicated uh, since two thousand and seven on the need for uh, investing in your capacity, uh, I, I would say this is not something that is um, is 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 not available. It's that the lack of planning and taking these long time delays. Given our patterns of of poor planning and delays in implementation, how do you see South African cities and even African cities moving towards green energy, and how do we move from really well-articulated policies to practical action on the ground. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, in terms of uh, energy markets in Africa, they're actually evolving. 
and it is an opportunity for uh, municipalities uh, to consider uh, perhaps their business model models uh, in their planning processes. But what I'd like to uh, point is that generally energy policy in many African cities is treated as an ad hoc and it's not taken as a core uh, mandate. So you'll find that energy is uh, considered after maybe building a house, but the crisis that we are facing in Africa, they are an opportunity for African cities to consider uh, integrating urban energy planning as a core mandate. So uh, we've seen in, the, in one of the recent documents from the World Economic Forum, uh, where um, they highlight some of the cities in Africa that are leading the way uh, to in a green future. So, for example, uh, Cape Town uh, has got an, a dedicated energy and climate unit. And uh, the, the city is also looking at preparing some of the ways of dealing with uh, energy crisis because transport is one of their uh, main uh, energy use um, uh, in the end users. Uh, they're preparing on ways to use electric vehicles powered with renewable energy. Other cities include uh, Kokodi in Ivory Coast. Uh, which has got a green city plan uh, to cut emissions. We also have uh, cities like Dakar in Senegal uh, that is committed to produce uh, renewable energy from uh, energy from renewable energy uh, by 2035. Uh, Kampala in Uganda, uh, uh, which also has got a, an energy and climate change action plan, and we also have uh, Seni in Togo. Uh, which has got a plan on sustainable biomass and it's also deploying rooftop uh, solar PVs and electric vehicles. But coming back to South Africa, I would say that a government has paved the way for embedded generation um, and municipalities have the opportunity to take uh, uh, to, 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 to move towards green energy uh, uh, with this particular uh, um, uh, policy uh, implementation. But we find that very few municipalities are in the position to implement it due to maybe lack of capacity in terms of resources, uh, financial resources, as well as skills resources. But I would say it's an opportunity uh, to move towards green energy. You've just given us some very interesting examples of cities around the continent. Um, that are using or looking at alternative sources of power. Could you perhaps give us more specific ideas on what other sources of power could and should be considered in South Africa and on the continent in well, general? Uh, that's a very big question, uh, and Domini, because, you know, uh, the sources, uh, renewable energy sources uh, depends on uh, how, what, what resources each particular country has. So, for example, we know that South Africa is well endowed with coal. That's why the, the country has been using coal for a long time. But we are also endowed with renewable energy. And this includes solar. It also includes wind. It also includes geothermal uh, uh, technologies. It also includes hydro technologies. And, uh, and uh, these are some of the resources that we can, we can tap on. And uh, for example, I would say Kenya is very well endowed with Jodamo, and the country moved from having 
about 26% of its uh, population having access to ele electricity to now almost 76% of its population having electricity because they now use geothermal. Uh, previously, uh, the country was relying on hydro, but because of erratic rainfall, um, the, 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 the supply was, um, was, was not uh, enough. Uh, gas, of course, gas is it's it's not uh, it's seen as a conventional energy, but it can be seen as a convention or as a transitional energy as we attempt to uh, move to more renewable energy. But I would say that there would be more of a mix of energy um, sources that we need to use, but moving towards reduction of um, resources or sources that generate a, a more um, uh, CO2 emissions. Zeroing in on low-income household, what do you think is the impact of the energy crisis on lower-income households? Low-income households are more likely to be the most vulnerable in various ways. Uh, firstly, I think uh, the households are more likely to remain in poverty uh, because it affects their local businesses, it affects the uh, industry in which they the, the households are maybe employed, as well as affecting the economy in which they are involved in. Uh, it is also likely to worsen the ability of the low-income households to meet their energy services. So, like, now we are having load shedding. Um, the households are more likely not to cook when they need to cook uh, or uh, open their businesses when they want to open their businesses. I remember I visited one informal settlement recently and the, the, the local businesses around there, they were shut down because there was no electricity. And this was uh, not just because of load shedding, because they are even more affected than the, the, the normal load shedding that we are having. And they have power cuts, for example, if it rains, uh, so they are, more, they are even more affected. Then the low-income households are also likely to engage in dangerous activities to meet their energy needs, uh, which includes uh, continued reliance on dangerous fuels such as paraffin, candles. Uh, some even use sawdust uh, waste uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to meet their energy services, such as warming themselves during, uh, during winter. I remember in one community where uh, they showed a particular waste they use, which generates um, uh, a particular smoke that was um, linked to health-related issues in the community. Uh, energy crises are also likely to affect other aspects of households, as I mentioned here, uh, things related to access to clean water, when the water is not supposed to be pumped because uh, of electricity or the, the water is not being able to be, uh, to be purified, so which means uh, uh, water that is supplied is uh, is is an, it's not um, it, it's 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 not in good condition for use at the household level. Uh, issues about safety at night and health related issues, which I mentioned earlier, because of using unclean fuels. Uh, so what I can uh, point out generally is that uh, the crisis is likely to worsen the socioeconomic well being of the low income households and possibly widen the inequality gap, which is a challenge in South Africa. Thank you, Josephine. You've given us some really clear examples of how the energy crisis is actually further penalizing people.
people who are already living in the margins. What role do you see innovation playing in moving towards a more just energy transition? So I see uh, innovation firstly needs to encompass activities and services that are motivated in meeting uh, social needs. Uh, that uh, means that we need to go beyond a one-size-fits-all solution. So ways in which maybe the innovation can play in just uh, transitions would be uh, having innovations that expands energy sources, either grid or off-grids, uh, that relies on renewables and alternative solutions, uh, while also ensuring that they create jobs they improve energy security, and they also decarbonize the energy sector. A second way is innovations that uh, provides business models that encompass the unfulfilled energy services. What I mean unfulfilled energy services is uh, the, 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 service, the, the energy services that the, the households or the businesses are not, are not met. Uh, so, for example, right now, I need to be able to um, to charge my, my, my laptop, which is almost uh, about to die. <laughs> the battery is almost dead, uh, but I can't. So that is an unfulfilled energy service. So we need business models that can provide um, a, the a solutions to provide for energy service that we need to fulfill. And this needs to be context specific. And this means that solutions implemented in low-income households they require co-designing solutions with the communities because you can design a, a technology to provide service, but it doesn't suit the low-income households. And those energies, uh, those solutions need to be affordable. They need to be also modern and they need also to be able to last longer, meaning that they are sustainable solutions. And another way is also innovating energy devices that are suitable to fulfill those energy services and they are adaptable to the context. And, and I would say the collaboration is very important, collaborating with the different stakeholders, because that helps you to have a, 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 a diverse perspective on developing the technology or developing the solutions, rather than somebody making a solution in overseas and dropping it in an informal settlement in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Are you able to share any examples of innovative initiatives or projects that you're aware of on the continent that have been able to move the needle just a little bit towards the, a more secure energy? I can say that uh, uh, some projects that have been uh, working towards this uh, particular area, uh, one of it is a project I was involved in uh, co-designing energy solutions with urban households in the informal settlements in South Africa, Kenya, and Uganda. Uh, what was quite interesting is uh, we co-designed with informal settlement uh, population, and we learned the majority of households in those uh, three case studies uh, were female-headed households. And some of the households, they uh, were able to shift from using unclean fuel sources, uh, such as paraffin and charcoal, uh, to using gas. And they also learned that they were spending more money in on charcoal and paraffin compared to using gas. But I, I also want to say, mention, uh, point out some uh, innovative solutions that are ongoing. And particularly in South Africa, we have pay gas. 
uh, which is providing uh, solutions to in the informal settlements. We have Zonke Energy uh, that is delivering uh, also energy solutions to uh, informal settlements. And also ISHAC project, which is a social enterprise uh, offering off-grid solar uh, solutions in the informal settlements. I know in Kenya, the Kenyan government has managed to move most households from charcoal to gas because they came up with different technologies like one liter gas cylinder, three liter gas cylinder, five liter, uh, nine liter. So which means that different households can buy depending on the on 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 on, uh, on, on affordability. Uh, Mozambique is also another country that has been looking on uh, shifting uh, gas, uh, shifting the households from uh, biomass to gas because Mozambique has got uh, gas resources. From a systems point of view, what are some of the leverage points that you think need to be better understood and utilized to bring about sustainable? approach to energy security, particularly in South Africa? Some of the things that come uh, uh, um, based on some of my initial work in this area uh, is investment in energy supply. Because without investment, we cannot expect any improvement in supply. So that will require investment in renewable energy supply or off-grid solutions, and, and also ensuring that the planning that uh, take into account of delays and investments. Because we can have all these different solutions, like let's change the person in charge of the, the, the energy sector. Let's uh, change this. But without investment, no matter what you do, nothing is going to happen. We are not increasing the supply by doing that. So the second aspect is about a private sector investment in social innovation, which I think it's a, it's a leverage point to help address uh, the fulfillment of energy services, particularly in the low-income uh, households. And that uh, aspect is uh, about the government creating conducive environment uh, that would allow um, collaborative efforts with diverse stakeholders of course, uh, it's been on the news uh, that there are a lot of social political backlash on this in terms of uh, uh, providing a, or expanding the supply of energy. So government can play a key role on that. But another aspect is about demand side management, which is uh, through education and awareness uh, to help end users. And end users here, it's about households, uh, businesses, industry, all those people who use energy at the, at the, in their consumption on how to reduce their consumption, how to improve energy efficiency through using uh, uh, products that uh, use less energy, uh, as well as uh, to consider investing in off-grid solutions if they can. And then uh, finally, it's about skills development in the new and alternative energy, because we need to, to develop the skills. We need also to educate uh, uh, people about the critical role uh, to the energy transitions so that people will not be asking why, uh, or people won't be still waiting for electricity from the grid, but they can look at, uh, uh, understand why these challenges are happening and how they can actually be part of the solution. To that point, do you have any thoughts on what the average South African can do to play their role in the green economy and the just energy transition? It's a question that I've been asking. What can I do daily to be part of the solution rather than the problem? 
So I, I don't think that the household uh, can completely move away from the grid at the moment, but I think there are small steps that we can consider towards that process of uh, uh, contributing to being part of the solution rather than a problem. And I, I think uh, one of them is about uh, uh, looking on whether we, you can, we can invest in alternative renewable energy, uh, particularly devices that rely less on the grid electricity. Um, also looking at uh, investing completely on off-grid solutions. Uh, I know there are some uh, industry that uh, or uh, businesses that are already moving off-grid, but these are mainly um, uh, or households are moving off-grid uh, or hybrid solutions. But these are mainly uh, high-income households who are able to shield themselves from uh, the interruption on uh, the, the energy crisis. But we see the low-income households are, are not capable to do that. But then another aspect of uh, we can deal with the energy crisis is investing on uh, other alternative uh, uh, fuels, uh, for example, gas stoves for cooking. Uh, or solar energy solutions devices like water heating, uh, solar water heating, uh, solar lights. Uh, I know uh, some 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 businesses or some households have invested in fuel powered generators. Of course, this this is uh, not like a, the, the the final solution, but it's a, a solution to help in meeting the, their services. But like fuel powered generators are still using uh, diesel, which is a which is a, a, a conventional energy that, that's generating uh, CO2 emissions. But these are some of transitional uh, ways uh, of, of contributing to the crisis, but looking at, um, uh, at, at, at a more longer perspective of shifting to uh, hybrid or off-grid solutions. Josephine, this is a big problem as we've been discussing throughout our conversation. What keeps you hopeful and inspired in this work? <laughs> and to me, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful and inspired because I know each day is a new day to make a difference, one step at a time. Thank you, Josephine, for sharing your story with us. I'm so grateful that there are people like you who have devoted their lives and their intellect to this kind of work and research. Thank you, Tomini, for having me. And, all, uh, and I also thank all the listeners for tuning in. As this season continues and we hear the stories of different change makers, I'm fascinated by the fact that change makers and change making takes on so many shapes and sizes. We've heard from change makers on the ground and we've heard from researchers and everything in between. Every single person contributes to making small incremental shifts that will hopefully make the world of difference. As I said at the beginning of this episode, energy is a contentious issue in South Africa. And it's something that we're so aware of because we experience the inconveniences of blackouts every day. Let this remind us of why renewable energy and the just energy transition are so crucial to creating a sustainable future, one that benefits us all. And that brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you for tuning into season three of the Just for Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. If you're interested in hearing more conversations with change makers, then make sure you subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. If you've enjoyed this content, I'd also like to invite you to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts. And feel free to share it with friends 
family and colleagues. Let's stay inspired and keep changing the way we're changing the world.